You're listening to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast. Here's the deal. If you make disciples by sitting around and talking, you shouldn't be surprised when your disciples sit around and talk and talk and talk. This is the podcast for those weary of just talking and ready to start activating in the mission Jesus gave us to change the world. The Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast, where disciples and disciple makers gather to grow and go together. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Friedemann. Hey, disciple makers. Welcome to the podcast today. Remember, the place for a man, for a woman complete in all their powers is in the fight. And right now, today, somewhere in the world, making disciples of the nations. So stay tuned, stay encouraged. We have a rendezvous with destiny. All right, folks, good to have you. Good to have you. Good to have you. Listen, we got a couple of things we want to do today. One of them is to just kind of remind you, we've got a new book out there called The New Discipleship in the Home. If you haven't got that volume yet, you're going to want it. Now, I've written The Discipleship in the Home, but we've updated the thing. We think you're really going to like the uh, the updates. Someone was just in here in my office a few moments ago saying, man, my wife is digging that book. And she says, uh, and, and, and he said to me, she looked over at me and says, man, we're going to have to start making some adjustments around here. Well, yes. I mean, if you read something that is you know, purported to be a book on family or a book on money or a book on sexuality or a book on anything, the whole point is Jesus may just want you to read and change. So that's what we hope that you'll do. But it's a great volume. We want you to check it out. The new Discipleship in the Home. Uh, it's up on Amazon.com and you need to get down. By the way, when you do that, go ahead and write a review about it down at the bottom of the page. You can do that after you order and read it and like it. You can go do that. Furthermore, somewhere or another, there's a way to like this podcast. I don't know how you do that. But uh, one way or another, you can say, hey, I do like it. And uh, by the way, here's a recommendation to all others that are looking for good podcasts. So this is the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast with Matt Friedman. Of course, we've got this book we want you to go get, The New Discipleship in the home. So check it out. Uh, listen, I just kind of today wanted to talk about a subject. We were talking about it on Sunday at church, and I just consider it so incredibly vital. And the reason why everybody ought to consider it pretty important is simply that the Bible talks about it so much. Uh, I wrote a book years ago called The Accountability Connection, and uh, it started off with this quote by David Augsburger. He says, money, 200 proof, Taken straight or mixed with many lovely things, it's the most intoxicating substance known to man. <laughs> I thought that was really, and it's probably why Martin Luther said this, there are three conversions necessary, the conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the purse. Boy, remember that one. And I'm not sure we spend enough time with our disciples to really convince them about what they ought to be thinking about money. Now, I think most of us would say, as you know, we folks who are in church work, and I'm definitely that, in the church work, I, uh, I, I know what I think about it. I want people to tithe. But that's 10%. If you get everybody in your church tithing, guess what? Everybody that ties still has a 90% they need to think about, and I'm not sure we disciple well the 90%. I don't think we really teach them what needs to happen with all of God's resources in your pocketbook, and I think that's important to remember, is it's God's money. 
It all belongs to him. You are a steward of his resources, his money, and therefore we ought to think about it in those terms. We need to think about how does God want us to spend his money? How does God want us to invest his money? It's just, it's it's such an awesome and easy thing to get your mind around, but it's not such an easy thing to get your life around. So I, you know, we're, we're in a sermon series right now at our church called Letters to Young Leaders. And uh, basically this whole concept comes out of First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus, in which Paul writes to some young leaders, some young pastors in these churches that Timothy and Titus are part of, and just says to them, listen, I know that you're young and I know that you've got issues. Let's talk about them. And so he does. And one of the things he decides he must talk to Timothy about is money. And so you can go to chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, verses 6 to 10, and then I skip ahead and go from 7 to 19. So it's basically 1 Timothy 6. And what is articulated there is pretty wise counsel for all young disciples or any disciple of Jesus Christ that has some money. And that would be, of course, all of us. Now, why do we talk about money? Of all the things we could talk about, we probably don't talk about it nearly enough. Now, now I think most pastors don't like to talk about money because we always hear, you know, that that's all the church wants is your money. That's all they ever talk about is money. So we tend to not to want to talk about it, but I think we ought to talk about it just about as much as Scripture does. And did you know that 16 out of Jesus's 38 parables or so touch on the subject of money or material possessions? So it's talked about a lot by Jesus. Did you know that one out of every 10 verses in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, speak about money? Did you know that there are about 500 verses in the Scripture on prayer? And we love to teach about prayer. 500 verses on faith, and oh boy, do we love to teach on on faith. But there are 2,000 verses on money. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a spiritual issue. It's a holiness issue. It's a righteousness issue. We have to talk about it. And so Paul does that with Timothy. And I just some, some real quick issues here. The first one is this. We need to, at the center of our lives, recognize a godliness with contentment. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Well, food and clothing, and we're going to be content with just that, and that's what Paul says. Now, having said that, later on, much later in Christian history, would come a guy named John Wesley. And John Wesley would say, bingo, no question about it. Food and clothing, what he called the plain necessaries of life. Now, he expanded the plain necessaries just a little bit to say that would also include enough money to carry on your business and to be able to make money so that you can give more away. But he said, we got to get to a place of contentedness with our lives. If we don't, we will find ourselves in trouble with God. We will find ourselves outside of the abundant life that he dreamed for us. So this whole thing, contentment. Contentment basically means gratified and satisfied. I'm thankful for what I've got, and I am satisfied with it. I was going through a kind of a midlife. I, I didn't have time for a midlife crisis at 40 and 41. I was, I was planting a church and having another kid. So it just didn't have... 
So I, I had to put it off for a while. So a couple of years ago, I went through the, the midlife crisis of Matt Friedman. And uh, my family bought me a little uh, uh, a sign, I guess. Just, you know, it's a metal sign. We got no place to hang it in the house. So we just, it, it's over there on the bookshelf, kind of leaning against the wall. But it has a very important message. And it's almost like, dear dad. Now it doesn't say dear dad, but it's dear dad. The secret to having it all is knowing that you already do. It just matters what your all is. As far as money is concerned, material possessions, how much is all and how much is enough? Yeah, remember this uh, lady named Lori Laughlin, actress, and she got caught up in this whole college admissions scandal. Remember that a couple years ago? Uh, it was supposed to serve two years of supervised release, and her husband got hung up a whole lot worse than that. Uh, she had uh, what two years of supervised release and uh, had to perform 100 hours of community service. Her husband got whapped with five months in prison, uh, $250,000 fine, 250 hours of community service. But during the hearings, and that's what I want to get to here, there was a U.S. District Judge, Nathaniel Gordon, that addressed both of them, and he said this, here you are an admired, successful, professional actor with a long-lasting marriage, two apparently healthy, resilient children, more money than you could ever possibly need, a beautiful home here in sunny Southern California. You've got a fairy tale life, a fairy tale life. Yet you stand before me a convicted felon, and for what? For the inexplicable desire to grasp even more more. I, I love stories of the rich and famous, just kind of get insights into how their lives work out. Apparently, Joseph Heller. Now, Joseph Heller wrote this book called Catch-22, a, a wildly popular novel. It sold bunches and bunches and bunches. I made him very rich. But uh, <laughs> there was a party that he was at. And uh, the guy that was throwing the party was a billionaire hedge fund manager. And they were on this place called Shelter Island. And someone walks up to Joseph Heller and says, hey, Heller, you do know that this guy has made more money in a single day than you ever earned from that book, Catch-22, over its whole history. And Heller had a great response. He says, yes, but I have something he will never have. Enough. And I think that's the point that Paul's trying to get to. Everybody's got to decide what is enough. And Paul sets down the standard, the plain necessaries. In other words, we are talking about food and clothing enough to make your life sustainable. Then we are going to be Christian with all the rest of our money in as much, not that it's not Christian to eat or to have clothing, but from with the rest of our money, we are going to make sure that Jesus things get done, great commission things get done, that compassionate ministry gets done. That's what our money is all about. That's what God's gifts of funds is to us. We release it into a needy world. The next thing that Paul, I think, says is this. Uh, don't have a desire to be rich. Shun, shun the love of money. And verse 9 says this, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and into d 
destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced himself with many pangs. You know, this whole thing of, I think most of us say, yeah, 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 I don't want to be rich. No, 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 I don't love money. But the fact of the matter is we can tell how much we love it, and we can tell how much uh, we love wealth by, and sometimes this comes down to this, how we treat our kids. Now, there's an author, by the way, that, that, that book, The New Disruption of a Home, there's a famous columnist that has written the foreword to a guy named John Rosemond. And I was poking around the internet and found this. John basically is a no-nonsense parenting guide. <laughs> if you ever want to have no-nonsense parenting guidance, Joe, Ron's man, Joe Rosemond is your man. And he's done three very informal, very informal, very informal and non-scientific polls. But I think every one of them kind of resonate, and we could confirm that they're all true. Poll number one. He said, I've done a lot of traveling internationally, says John. Uh, whenever I go to a, say, an, an international location, a foreign country, I ask parents, are your kids bored? Do they complain about boredom? And he said, without exception, everybody in foreign lands say no. Parents in other countries sometimes will look at him with great incredulity and say, boredom, kids, man, they don't go together. And yet here we are in one of the richest nations that have ever existed in human history, and our kids are very bored with more stuff than they could ever possibly use. Why? Because we have a desire to be rich, because we love money, because we want to make sure we and our kids have more and more and more of the newest and the best stuff to make us what it'll never make us happy. Second poll. He takes among parents who raised their kids in the 40s and 50s. So that would be like my parents and my parents' parents. So, and that's what Rosemont thinks is basically back there, they had a common sense way of raising kids. We do not anymore. We've lost it. We got to get back to what our grandparents and our parents did. But he, he says, okay, I asked the parents that raised their kids in the 40s and 50s this question, when you were raising your kids, did you hear them complain about boredom? And the typical response is rarely. Everyone had less stuff and a lot less prosperity, but they had more happiness and far less boredom. And the third survey was this. He asked parents his age. Now, John, I don't know how old John is, maybe 10, maybe 15 years older than I am. Uh, how many toys did you have growing up? And he said the answers usually raised from zero to 10. In fact, he said that some of the people that he would ask, people his age, they would say zero. Or they'd say something like toys. I mean, <laughs> we had toys. We had cardboard boxes. Yeah. And when we were, we found a cardboard box, we made sure we made something out of it. And it was fun. We had a blast. Never bored. He said, by contrast, according to the studies, the typical American child has accumulated about 250 toys. And we stopped to think that a five-year-old has only lived for 260 weeks. 250 toys equals about one toy per weekend. And yet those kids will say, mom, I'm bored. We're bored because we pierce ourselves with many pangs of grief by giving ourselves, our kids, our grandkids, what they don't need and really what they don't even want. And you'll know they don't want it when they're playing with the cardboard box after you've given them this $250 gift. 
then I love, I love, I love what Paul says here. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, which is to say prideful or arrogant, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Boy, I, I remember this. I just I don't know when I first ran across it. I don't think it was in school. I think it was much later, but I was so impressed when, when uh, I read about President Lincoln designating April the 30th as a day of national, get a load of this, national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. That in 1863. And in it, he said, we have grown in numbers, we've grown in wealth, we've grown in power, as no other nation has grown. But we have forgotten God. And folks, when you forget God, you want to know what happens? <laughs> I'll tell you what happens. You place yourself in the center of your life. You forget God, there's a vacuum there. And what moves into the vacuum? You move in to the vacuum. And you lack what you need to have in this world to be all the person of God you ever imagined that you could be, that he ever imagined you could be. What you lack all of a sudden is a humility, is a God-centeredness. And boy, I would think that's kind of essential for us to be the people we need to be. Now, having said that, I just think it's so incredibly important that we remember here what it is that finally got Sodom and Gomorrah into such problems. Did you, have you ever heard this verse in Ezekiel 16? Uh, This whole thing of why it is that you have gotten in big problems. Behold, this was, this is Ezekiel 16, 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Now I would think with the name Sodom, it would be, you know, weird sexuality that got them in trouble. Well, this is what it says. Well, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had Arrogance, plenty of food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and the needy. So they were haughty, same word used in First Timothy. They were haughty, they were arrogant, they were prideful, and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. Arrogance is right at the center of this passage. And what is it? I told them what to do, take care of the poor and the needy. Instead, they took care of themselves. They had plenty of food. They had carefree ease, but they neglected the needy. Therefore, I removed them. Humility, putting your hope in God, and God alone is essential when you're thinking about money or any other issue of your life. And our young disciples need to hear this message. The last thing is this. What is real wealth? And we believe in wealth. I happen to be a guy who thinks that wealth is probably a good thing when it's understood biblically. And what is real wealth? Well, we'll listen listen to Paul, verse 18. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, I got to tell you, I have never, ever quoted the guy I'm about ready to quote, ever. I don't like what he does, but uh, there's a guy 
<laughs> that writes and helps make, make movies, a guy named Stephen King. And uh, it, it's horror flicks, basically. He's not, that's not all that he does. That's most of what he does. But he made a speech at Vassar College in May of 2001, and he entitled it Scaring You to Act. I thought, that's, that's, that's great. So I'm just going to read this to you. He had been lying in a ditch by a country road, injured from being hit by a van two years before this speech. He says, I was laying there in the ditch. Now, I had a MasterCard in my wallet, but when you're lying in a ditch with broken glass in your hair, no one accepts MasterCard. <laughs> no, no kidding, huh? No one's there to accept it. He got a painful but important insight. He says, you know, in that moment, it, I all, it all of a sudden dawned on me, we come naked and broke into this world, and while we might be dressed when we go out, we're just as broke. Of all the power most Americans have, Stephen King said this, the greatest is undoubtedly the power of compassion, the ability to give. We have enormous resources in this country, but they're only yours on loan, only yours to give for a short while. I want you to consider making your lives one long gift to others. And why not? All you have is on loan anyway. All you want to get at at the getting place, from the Maserati you may dream of to the retirement fund some broker's trying to sell you, you just need to know none of that, none of that is real. All that lasts is what you pass on. The rest is smoke and mirrors. And then he did this. Fascinating. He invited the audience to imagine a typical American backyard with mom, dad, and the kids enjoying a delicious barbecue. And they're right there next to the swimming pool. And standing around that fence, looking in, are emaciated men and women, starving children. They're silent. They can only watch. It reminded me of a story that an Eastern college professor told, you may have heard this before. This Eastern college professor says, I was down in Haiti and we just ordered a meal, nice restaurant in Haiti. And uh, we ordered some steak. And so the host brought the steak and there we were. And the waiter waits for us there and says, is everything okay? We said, everything's great, thank you. And Campola says, I'm starting to cut the steak. I'm about ready to put a piece of it in my mouth and I cannot wait. It looks so delicious. When all of a sudden, there was somebody at the window. Two, three kids with their noses pressed up against the glass. And the waiter looks back and says, oh, my goodness, someone's bothering my friends, my customers. So he goes over, the waiter goes over, quickly pulls the curtain looks at the professor and his friend and says, don't let them bother you. Enjoy your meal. And friends, that's what much, too much, too, too much of the church and our discipleship programs do with the needy of the world. We close the curtain and say, don't let all that bother you. Just keep reading your Bible. Let's just keep praying. Let's just try to get more, keep getting more people in here to this church, but let's forget about what we could be using our money for, and that's to take care of the poor, the oppressed, the downtrodden, the needy. 
And y'all, I'm quite convinced that we don't talk about that nearly enough. I I, kind of lost track of this church, Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C. But in that book I was telling you about, The Accountability Connection, I got a chapter on money. And they have a membership covenant, part of which says this, I believe that God is the total owner of my life and resources. I give God the throne in relation to the material aspect of my life. God is the owner. I am the ower. Because God is a lavish giver, I too shall be a lavish and cheerful in my regular gifts. God's a lavish giver. I will be a lavish giver. And I think at the end of the day, that's exactly what Paul wants for the church that Timothy is pastoring. Make them great givers. Make them disciples that love to release their money to true need. Make them disciples that recognize their money is not their money. It all belongs to me. I am God Almighty. I am the Creator God. I am the Provider God. And I provided that money not just to them, but for those needs around them. That money ought to go to those needs. Wow. All right. It's a wrap. It's been an honor to have you listening to the life-changing discipleship podcast with Matt Friedemann. Hey, check out the Facebook page. Make sure you check me out, Matt Friedemann, on Twitter. Love to become your friend there. And of course, always check out our books at amazon.com, including the new Discipleship in the Home. Always, always tell others about our podcast. And remember, my wife thanks you. My daughter thanks you. My sons and their wives thank you. And I can assure you that I thank you for listening to this podcast today. Love God, live clean, keep the faith, make disciples, and God bless you, dear friends. We'll see you back here real soon. Music